Can you hear me? So, it's Saturday night again. <laughs> and uh, I want to first take the opportunity just to bow to all of your practices. And uh, just say it's such an honor to be here and to witness the unfolding of intensive practice. And, you know, I'm really honored to be here. I want to um, express my gratitude to the IMS board, a few of which are in the room right now. Just all the wonderful work that they did to make this very special landmark retreat happen. It really is a very landmark event. And we all get to be witness to the unfolding of something really wonderful that's going to impact Western Buddhism all around. And I bow to all of those hard efforts. And all of to the, to the yogis who, I know that you have, uh, you know, under great, um, you know, you've taken great care to come here and spend either six weeks or three months of your life to do this practice. And I just bow to that kind of effort. And I'm very grateful and honored to be participating in it. So tonight, for my last Dharma talk, I thought I would give you some of the insights that I've had for being here for the last three and a half weeks, what I have learned on my summer vacation. (laughs) I've been uh, really lucky to sit in with Joseph for... um, many, you know, a lot of his practice interviews for the last three and a half weeks. When I first got here, I, you know, talked to the teachers about how should I, you know, participate in the interviews, and they had this advice or that advice, but Guy said, you should just sit in with Joseph the whole time. (laughs) And I think that was really good advice. He's really a very skillful, a skillful guide. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what I learned hanging out with Joseph's interviews. I'm going to talk a little bit about or share what I learned from hanging out with the other teachers, which was really wonderful. I'm going to share a little bit about what the fabulous staff at IMS has taught me. And I'm going to talk a little bit about stuff that's worked for me also um, during intensive practice periods. So first I'd like to say that I'm not going to be uh, talking about you know, anything that anybody said during an interview, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and let me just say that uh, many of the things that everyone said, you know, I don't think that there was one person who had one unique thing to say. I mean, not that we're all not unique, but... <laughs> The things that are happening right now are happening to everyone pretty much. You know, there's a set, a set um, amount of things that unfold at this time during a intensive retreat, and it's happening. You know, the, the law of the Dharma is unfolding. The lawful Dharma is unfolding. So I'm not going to be... So if I talk about something that sounds familiar to you... It, you know, it's because Joseph told it to a lot of people, not just to you. So, <laughs> so um, I want to talk a little bit about skillful means. Because sometimes I know it could seem like the practice um, 
you know, there's a lot of different remedies that you could use for hindrances or a lot of different things you can do when wonderful mind states arise. And I'd just like to say a little bit about that, that, you know, the Buddha taught uh, many different skillful means. And I think I said this in a former uh, Dharma talk, but, um, you know, we know what the goal of our practice is, right? We're, we're practicing for ultimate freedom, for real freedom. And so we know, you know, that's the pinnacle of the mountain, but there's probably many paths up that mountain. I mean, it's the Eightfold Path, but how that unfolds for any of us is going to be different, you know, given our sila, samadhi, and panya, the strength of that, our karmic tendencies, our sankaras. So so it's really an issue of applying skillful means of all these great uh, remedies that were offered and advice that were offered in the practice. So there's this one... Um, one small part of a sutta that I want to bring to mind right now. It's a story of um, just the inevitability of freedom if you walk this path. And it said, you know, the Buddha talked about a hen, whether she had eight, ten, or twelve eggs, and she was sitting on the, um, sitting on the eggs to have them hatch. And she didn't have to sit there and think, well, what, you know, how do I need to sit on these eggs to have them hatch? And do I need to move over here? Or do I need to roll this one over a little bit this way? Does that sound a little familiar? <laughs> Sitting on your eggs over there? That if you do this practice, it's inevitable that you know the uh, the nature of the eggs are for them to hatch and that they will hatch. The Buddha said, "In the same way as these eggs, when a disciple of the noble ones is practicing virtue and guards the doors of his sense faculties and knows moderation in eating." And if she is devoted to wakefulness, and if she is endowed with the seven qualities, the seven factors of enlightenment, and is able to get some concentration, then whose eggs are unspoiled, who is capable of breaking out, capable of awakening, capable of attaining the supreme rest from the yoke, the eggs will hatch. And he promises that. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is um, how you might think about your practice interviews. And there really is a pretty wide variety of how people go into practice interviews. And I'm sure many of you know that the uh, Thai and Burmese um, grandparents of our practice had a very specific way that people would report to them. And again, you know, this is a matter of skillful means. If you're finding that you're getting everything out of the interview that you need, you probably don't necessarily need to uh, take any of this advice. But if you feel like you would, uh, you know, could get more out of the interview, you might just reflect on, you know, this is just a little bit of advice. So one thing uh, that you might consider is, and I'm, you might notice that the teachers ask you this if 
you um, don't readily offer it is describe what one sitting is like. You might describe what one really good sitting is like, and you might describe what one so-called difficult sitting is like, just so the teachers might get a, a, an idea of you know, what's going on with, your, um, with the factors in your mind. And then you want to, and in that way it'll make you think about recalling what goes on in a sitting. It'll make you reflect on how a sitting is going. And then you also probably want to discuss what one walking period is like. Just think about, you know, what one walking period from the beginning to the end is like and report that to your teachers. And then also you want to report um, what your level of continuity and mindfulness is during your daily activities. And I'm sure your teachers have asked you, how's your sitting? What's your primary object? What are you practicing? How's the walking going? Are you continuously mindful? What's your object? And then how are you doing during daily activities? One good thing I heard is to talk about what is happening, not what is not happening. So just to be aware of what, you know, if you're struggling with something not happening, to that's something happening. So you should think, you know, that might be something to reflect on. And then finally, and I'm sure... You know, this is, um, I'm sure you all do this already, but just to remind um, us all, including myself, because I am so guilty of this, or this is a, you know, habit pattern I have, give the teachers time to talk. (laughs) Sometimes we go in and we have a lot to get out. And we don't take a pause to really hear some great advice or a reflection on what's going on with us. And I'm talking to myself here, so so that might be one thing to think about. So I got some excellent advice from the staff. And, you know, these are people who are definitely, you know, their life is the practice. And I think this is excellent advice. And some advice that I got was pay attention to your walking practice. I know some people have various degrees of walking practice. I know for me, there is a huge shift in just, um, you know, my overall um, path factors when I realize just how important walking practice is. And I did hear um, Joseph say to more than one yogi that you should definitely balance the sitting with the walking. So if you're sitting more than two hours, if you're sitting two or two and a half hours or even up to two hours, you want to make sure that you walk at least 45 minutes. Just to uh, have an energetic balance. You know, a good reflection is that walking practice is not a peripheral practice. It's not a break from mindfulness at all. And you can get quite concentrated doing walking practice. And actually, there are some insights that, um, you know, the unfolding of insights in the practice, some of those insights are much more likely to come during walking practice and during sitting practice or other activities. So it's a very useful practice. 
And one thing you want to um, just remember about walking, and you know, there's a few different ways to do walking, but um, just to remind us what, you know, what uh, some of the instructions were in the beginning is, you know, we're concentrating on or we're um, tending to the um, waist down to our, to our feet. And I just have to tell you the story. <laughs> so remember when Joseph, uh, he was having uh, that wonderful talk on impermanence. He gave a wonderful talk on impermanence. And he referenced uh, Crazy Horse about, you know, today is a good day to die was a reflection of just the amount of presence that you can have, you know, of good or so-called good or bad, you know. It's possible to be with a lot of suffering with a really equanimous mind. And he said a few times, today is a good day to die. The following day, I was on a listserv with a bunch of Native colleagues, you know, people who have a lot of tribal authority. Actually, the one woman was the director of the uh, Wyoming Montana Tribal Leaders Association. And, uh, you know, we were talking about a violence intervention where we're talking about, you know, what type of violence interventions are needed in Indian country. And, you know, I was just very peripherally, you know, um, just watching this conversation over two or three days, and I just popped in, and I just said, well, you know, if you ever want to include a section on mindfulness for maybe the perpetrators and the victims, you know, both sides of the um, violence equation, I'd be really interested in doing that, you know, mindfulness meditation. And the director of this association wrote back in and she said, you know, that's a great idea, but can we call it today is a good day to live? I just almost fell off the bed. And another woman, just really an incredible authority on uh, early childhood issues in Indian country, she used the word tending. She goes, oh, yeah, we do that. We call it tending. You know, tending to what's happening in the moment. So I just thought I would share that. I thought that was so beautiful. So um, tending, that's why I just reminded me when I said tend to your walking meditation. You know, and it was to be mindful of the um, of the waist down was one way to do it, and to you know start off maybe at a quicker pace and then slow down through the forty five minutes, and then um, you know be mindful and be inside the body. Right, you're not watching the body move. You're not you know, uh, watching for uh, lifting, moving, and placing. You're not connecting to the conceptual overlay. You're feeling the sensations of walking in the body. And then to use prompts. It's always great to use little reflections in the mind to bring you back to the present. And Joseph, you know, offered that really wonderful one that's actually in the Satipatthana Sutta. There is a body. There is a body. And may I be continuously mindful. So um, that was some of the advice from the staff. And they said one reason to do that too is because it's an excellent, um, it'll provide you a lot of continuity and ripen your, um, your path factors once you leave here, which I know you're not thinking about, but <laughs> it's an excellent practice that you can take with you 
as an excellent gift of this um, time here. I have another um, little um, bit of advice from the office about how to not get wrapped up in a lot of papancha. And that is, it's a lot easier if you have just one little thing, one little bit of um, business to do with the office, is to actually walk into the office during the uh, hours that they're open and just have a very brief, pithy conversation with them instead of writing notes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they would like it if you would just come in and just very briefly, if, you know, they're here to, uh, to serve the yogis, you know, that's their practice. They're getting a lot of merit out of that, so. <laughs> but on the other hand, you want to, uh, you know, have the same reflections about going into the office that you do about note writing. But they would like it, to, you know, if you would just pop in with any request rather than notes back and forth. So my advice before I get into some of the um, nitty-gritty stuff was, um, was I, tr- I, um, I hold retreats as ceremonies. And they really are. They're sacred ceremonies. They're very sacred ceremonies. And to actually, um, Saida Upandita, one of our spiritual grandfathers, talks about one of the ways to sharpen and balance the controlling factors is to, um, is to practice with a lot of um, care and diligence, like a ceremony. You know, treat it like a ceremony. And it just reminds me, um, I've done the um, Plains, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota Sundance for many years. I haven't done it for a while. I haven't done it for probably seven. Actually, I haven't done it for seven years, but I did do it for about 10 years in a row. And, um, you know, um, this practice was always my first practice. I came to that, though there's many, many similarities between the two. But I remember once, um, it was probably the first year that I actually sundanced. And, you know, the dance lasts for up to four days. You can decide to dance one, two, or three, or four days. And, um, you know, you dance from sun up to sundown with no water. And you dance for a few hours, and then you'll rest, and then you'll dance again. And, you know, while they play music, and the announcer talks about what the meaning of the ceremony is. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of thinking going on. It's a very body-based ceremony. And I remember... Just once, you know, um, getting into the circle and starting to dance, the thought came to my mind, well, I'm going to do dancing meditation. I'm going to apply Satipatthana to this ceremony. And oh my gosh, that ceremony just smacked me. It was like rigpa. It was like, you know, you get into the state where that thought just arose and it just evaporated like a bug on a one of those um, electrifying things. It was like this ceremony said to me, it was like the force of the ceremony said, this is not walking meditation. This is the sun dance. And it was like it had its own integrity to it. It had its own form. It had its own energetic lift. And just as this practice does, 
you know, I mean, we, you know, we, with our wealth, you know, want to drag ourselves this way or that way. The force of this practice is building in all of us. And, um, you know, one thing that um, Joseph said often was, we just need to get out of the way. Just get out of the way and let this force of MAGA take us on this trip. We've created the conditions for the force of MAGA to arise, and that's what's happening. It's a ceremony. So, you know, hold it with care, hold it with reverence. Take care with all of its forms, with its walking, with its sitting, with its eating. And that actually sharpens and balances the controlling factors, which are faith, effort, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And we know what that will lead to. We know what the Buddha promised. He said that properly practice Satipatthana leads to the purification of the mind, the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, the complete destruction of pain and mental distress, and the attainment of Nibbana. That's what we are practicing for. So, like I said, you know, many yogis had similar issues to report. If the problems sound familiar, it's because there were many common ones. So I'm not talking specifically about you. <laughs> so, so I want to talk a little bit just about the nature of hindrances and... Um, you know, we've heard a lot about hindrances, but that's a lot what people come in with, so I want to just say a little bit about those too. That, you know, the hindrances arise due to causes and conditions. They're not personal. They are not personal. The hindrances aren't personal, and the insights aren't personal either. They're all anatta. And the hindrance arise due to the strength of our sila, samadhi, and panya to you know, how we come in with our paramis ripened, the force of uh, the sila or the correct conduct in our life, and you know, what we've been practicing. And we all know, I think a good reflection during this time when our minds are very malleable right now, and you know, their um, react to, uh, to suggestion, is just to reflect on the fact that this is an eightfold path and the practice is 24-7. And for all our European relatives, you know, 24-7 means 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? But they say that in Europe too, don't they? So, so um, the hindrances tend to get very subtle during intensive practice, and they manifest in really different ways. It's very interesting. It's not useful uh, to define or judge yourself by the presence of hindrances. You know, like I'm an angry person or I'm a mean person or I'm a greedy person. You know, we talk about personality types, but that's just about the inclination towards certain habit patterns. And, you know, it's very important to realize that um, these things, it's not like these things underlie our personality. These things are temporary. They are not permanent. They arise by causes and conditions. Um, I was teaching a retreat with, um, or assisting actually Kamala Masters on a people of color retreat and was struggling with this, you know, we all have our own 
hindrances, right? I was struggling with this one hindrance and, you know, I was just having a wonderful time hanging out with her, you know, totally greedy for Kamala Masters. But anyway, um, I was telling her about this hindrance I was having and just ha have a hard time I a hard time I was having with really getting a mindfulness frame around it. And she just looked me in the eye and it was almost like an energetic hit. She said, you think it's permanent. So I'm looking you all in the eye and saying, you think it's permanent, but it's not. It is not fundamentally who you are in any way whatsoever. It is a habit pattern in the mind. And this practice, the Satipatthana, is exactly how we work with it. This is the best medicine for that. So it is not permanent. It's empty phenomena rolling along. Gil Fransdahl says, having a hindrance is like wandering through a maze, staring at the ground. Being mindful is like standing above the maze to get an overview. So what happens when we're feeling disconnected to practice? So um, this is what Joseph said in many practice interviews. People would come in and they would report one way or another of being disconnected to their practice. And, you know, being overwhelmed by something, um, sinking mind. And um, he would say that any feeling of disconnection to the practice should be a mindfulness bell. And he said this, you know, and I have to believe him. <laughs> he said that if there's any resistance in the mind, if there's any disconnection with practice, it's because there's something that is not being accepted in the mind, something that's not being seen, and something in the mind that's not being accepted. So if you're struggling, that's the first place to look, like what is not being accepted right now? So these are the things that might not be accepted. He said, many times it's a background mood. So we can recognize thoughts in the mind, but you know, sometimes we'll have a mood, a mood of irritation, a mood of just wanting something. And um, you know, oftentimes this bigger background mood, it's like a flavor in the mind that we have to see if you can recognize a flavor in the mind that maybe is preventing you from seeing clearly. And what you can do for that, one of the remedies is to do a hindrance check. Do a little check through the hindrances to see if there's any present. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that more in a second. Another thing to do is to reflect on the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. That, you know, oftentimes you can inspire faith in the mind and confidence by just reflect, reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha. I mean, how smart was he? You know, he had, a, he had more power in his brain and therefore taught us that we have more power in our brain, uh, rightly trained, you know, than an MRI. Since, you know, some of these fancy schmancy machines out there. And on the virtue of the Dharma and the Sangha. And then another problem that could be arising if you're disconnected is that you don't realize how much you're thinking. It's that, you know, you're thinking, 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 and you're thinking about thinking. You're thinking about practice, but you're not practicing because you're thinking. And um, 
So one you know, reason that you're disconnected is because you don't realize how much you're thinking. And he offers a great practice for this. This is the mind game. I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The mind game is to pretend that you have a big old movie uh, screen in your head and to just watch for thoughts as they go past it, essentially to make the third foundation your anchor for a little bit, a little while. Really just look at that anchor and just sit there like a little mouse, like a cat at the door of a mouse, a little mouse hole, and, you know, wait for the, uh, wait if you can see the arising and passing away of the thoughts, just to get a little bit more diligent with it. And then because thoughts can sneak in from the back and underneath, your screen has to be like 360 degrees around you. It's got to be a pretty massive 3D screen. Other things that you can do is reflect on your own virtue, reflect on your own generosity. Now, this is the one that really uh, gets me. This is um, a very uh, prominent problem or one of the reasons that my practice gets really goes awry is because that we're turning away. We have, you know, that very famous psychological condition called experiential avoidance that we have either discomfort in the body or discomfort in the mind that we're just not opening up to. And, you know, the remedy for that is just to be aware that we have aversion in our mind. We have aversion to feeling the dukkha that's in our body or in our mind. And if the dukkha is too much, you know, um, I mean, that's another thing to remember that our job is to maintain balance in the mind. So we do have to use skillful means to maintain that balance. If the... Um, if the discomfort in the body is too much, you know, there's things that you can do. Um, You know, don't conceptualize a a, a lot about it, just to feel, you know, feel the sensations of the discomfort. Oftentimes we have anxiety about what the pain is that's even worse than the so-called pain. And, you know, if things get bad, take an analgesic. (laughs) There's actually some aspirin over there in that cabinet. And, um, you know, we talked about the difference in the different traditions, the Vipassana traditions in the West, and some says don't take any analgesics, but the teachers are not going to tell you that. If you're suffering a lot with body pain, it's fine to take some ibuprofen. You know, it could be skillful means to take some ibuprofen. Or if there's dissatisfaction in the mind... That's a really interesting one, is to see the dissatisfaction with all conditioned experience. We're supposed to be seeing that. That's an insight. So you don't want to um, experientially avoid that. You don't want to avoid that. You really want to open to that. To see just how satisfying any of these things that we're engaging in are. And then a lot of times we will be struggling with staying with our object or um, being mindful. Our mindfulness will slip because there's clinging or craving in the mind. And I've talked about this before. And um, one thing that really works for me when there's a lot of clinging and craving in the mind is to just even exaggerate what the outcome would be. We know that anything that we could get, any conditioned experience 
is never going to live up to what our um, kind of un unconscious expectation for it is. You know, uh, I've heard from yogis that they can't wait, or actually from staff that, you know, they were in retreat and couldn't wait to go out to their favorite restaurant. And then as soon as they were at their restaurant, they couldn't wait at the restaurant, they couldn't wait to be back in retreat again. So, you know, it just goes from one to another. Or even think about the fantasy in your mind. Either you're, you're a Vipassana vendetta or you're a Vipassana romance, either one. You know, what, is the, what would be the outcome if that was absolutely um, came into reality? You know, you would have to evaluate that by any other thing that you've wanted in your life and gotten or any other thing that you, uh, avo you know, avoided in your life and had go away. You know, you're still here trying to overcome suffering. It did not provide any lasting satisfaction. And it's good to reflect on that. Just think, what do I want? You know, I want ice cream. I want, you know, this relationship. I want this to be going on in my job. I want my uh, friends to be like this. I want my house to be like that. If any of that happened, where would we be? Something else would arise. You know, that's a way to um, just realize the unsatisfactoriness of all conditioned things. And then another problem that's very common is low energy in the mind or sinking, sinking mindfulness. I should ask how many people have had sinking mindfulness. No, that's okay. <laughs> it might be ubiquitous. So what do we do for sinking mindfulness? First thing we need to do is recognize that we have sinking mindfulness. Is to even recognize, you know, we want to tap into the quality of our mindfulness. And that's the operative ingredient here is this mindfulness. And um, one thing that we can do is to uh, consistently note is to actually kick up the noting and also to um, have, more, um, have more touch points to be, have more objects to actually notice. So rather than just be with the breath, maybe be with the breath and you know, between the breaths, be with the pressure of your bottom on the cushion or your feet on the floor, you know, just to have more pressure points to keep, to increase the energy a little bit. So now I want to just give you some, um, what I'm calling rules and tools <laughs> and reflections and mantras. And, you know, that's one of the, um, because it is our job or the job of wisdom, wisdom, the wisdom mental factor is the one that can figure out what to do in any given moment. It's not us. It's actually wisdom arising. So we want to definitely cultivate this. And that's what mindfulness does. Mindfulness lets us see reality. And from that reality, wisdom will arise and the uh, mental factor of wisdom gets strengthened. You know, that's what we're doing here. So here are some um, rules and tools and reflections and mantra. When experience is hard to find, ask yourself, how am I knowing such and such is happening? Or how do I even know that I don't know anything is happening? How do I know nothing is happening? 
And um, something I actually learned from teachers here and also from Kamala is if you can't perceive what you're knowing in the moment, you can just note knowing, knowing. And what is knowing, knowing like? Um, to me, it's just having uh, or just having the faculty of aliveness. You know, you have the six sense doors. There's life in the six sense doors, so things are being known. And you can just note knowing, knowing, as a way to, you know, make sure that the mindfulness is still engaged at that moment. And then, of course, I'm sure you've heard from all the teachers that if there is positive mental states in the mind, you know, things that you're not worried about, uprooting, if you're not trying to uproot kalesha in the mind, you know, the uh, negative habit patterns, if there's positive or neutral mental factors in the mind, you want to switch to noticing the beginning and endings of things. You want to see the impermanence of things as they flow by. You want to notice the river-like quality of the experience. It's there. It's, It's always there. So... And don't over-investigate. We can over-investigate and get our mind bogged down. So um, quick noting of the entire process from beginning to end, like something is arise, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's weakened, it's going away. Something is rising weak, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's gone. Just really quick tracking of what's going on in the mind. Watch out for over-investigation. Come back to simplicity. And, you know, I'll say this again. I just said it, but I'll say it again. When material is sticky, when it feels like it's you having the experience, if it's kalesa, if it's unwholesome, you want to do some investigation. But if it's not sticky, you know, you want to notice the change. You don't want to over-effort towards positive mental factors. You definitely want to notice them and notice the quality of them, but you can back off and not be as diligent in getting kind of micro with them. At that point, you might want to look at um, the changing uh, flow of experience. Um, one, uh, and this is one um, reflection or mantra that I love that I heard Joseph say many, many years ago, and I've used it many times since. It's enlightenment means never having to change the subject. So you know that the mind is really, um, you know, the mindfulness is strong when you're not identifying with what's arising, when it doesn't matter with what's arising. You have a lot of equanimity. Enlightenment means never having to change the subject. One um, tool that um, he's been really uh, promoting that I'm, you know, going to be very um, happy to try the next time I get to go into retreat (laughs) is to use passive voice when you're noting. And, you know, he really swears by that. And some yogis have come in using passive voice and it has really worked for them. So rather than note, you know, um, I'm doing this or I'm doing that, uh, walking being known, thoughts being known, uh, taste being known, chewing being known, smelling being known, seeing being known, and things like that just to um, have a reflection of the wisdom and the noting. And then um, 
Joseph's been really big, and I've seen this myself, particularly with VVs and VRs, people that you really like or people that you might have some momentary, you know, I should say people you momentarily like or people that you momentarily have a, some interesting or negative feelings towards. If you notice contact in the immediate Vedana, you can see the arising of the wholesome or unwholesome um, the unwholesome arising of the klesa in response to the contact in the Vedana. It is so fascinating. If you know, notice that with people or with you know objects in the um, in the um, dining room. You know, just notice seeing, seeing contact. You have contact with a certain person, a certain being, and then you can feel the um, either pleasant or unpleasant Vedana, and then watch the thoughts arise and. That um, you know brings to another excellent um, way to uh, reduce negative mind states, and that is sense restraint. You know, don't look around a lot. You know, just keep your eyes down when you're, when you're walking around. If there are things that are triggering you for um, kalesha or you know greed or aversion or delusion, just don't look at them. It really is very helpful. <laughs> um, reflection and mantras. And again, you know, it is our job. It's wisdom's job to maintain balance in the practice. So you can be checking in to see how you're doing. Um, one reflection that really works for me is the whole image of regurgitation. The Buddha actually uses the image of a cow regurgitating to talk about how minds, I mean, thoughts just keep coming back into the mind. It's as if, you know, we have one story in our mind that just keeps getting regurgitated. You know, we, we chew it a little bit and we swallow it, and there's still some juice left in it. And then, you know, it could be that we're experiencing neutral Vedana, right? It's neutral Vedana. We're kind of bored. And the mind is, you know, the mind can get very addicted to thinking. The mind likes to think. The mind likes to get entertained if there's new neutrality there. So what happens? It regurgitates the story to chew on it a little bit more, you know, to see if there's any more juice in it. So the whole image of regurgitation. So I actually love the mental note, regurgitation, regurgitation. <laughs> it's kind of disgusting, and it's, that's what it is. It's a little bit disgusting to keep going over these same issues over and over again in our minds. And then another great mantra, of course, is a very simple one. <laughs> Are you thinking about regurgitation? <laughs> It's pretty, uh, it's impactful, isn't it? Just the thought of regurgitating. <laughs> Another great mantra is begin again. Begin again. It's, that's all we need to do. We're struggling, struggling. We might have to begin again 100,000 times, but that's the practice. Every time we begin again, we're strengthening mindfulness. We are strengthening wholesome intention. It's all about volition. It's all about the intention in the mind. And every time we begin again, we are watering the seeds of wholesome intention. So begin again. 
And I asked Joseph, I said, okay, Joseph, give me the mantras. And he said, this is one. If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> we, you know that these are his, right? If it's not one thing, it's another. And you probably know what the next one I'm going to say is. If it's not one thing, it's another. Oh, no. Anything can happen at any time. <laughs> That's another Joseph reflection. But it's actually quite good. Because, you know, we hang on to the smallest little pleasure thing, thinking that, you know, if we let go of that, something more wonderful could just be down the road, you know. We hang on to our suffering and we hang on to our pleasures, you know, not trusting that, you know, we'll get what we deserve. And we're doing very wholesome things here, so we're really, you know, um, creating the conditions for really excellent things to happen. So we want to let go of all of that. I love this reflection. If this lasts for the rest of my life, will it be okay? I have certain just involuntary thoughts and involuntary things I say, actually, that you know sometimes cause me a lot of aversion. I have a lot of aversion to them. And it's because I'm not accepting it. And you know, just slipping back and saying, if this happens for the rest of my life, it's okay. It's at least creating an intention of acceptance towards that thing in the moment. And that intention will eventually be fulfilled. I love this one. And I swear that I heard Joseph say this to Christopher Titmus in Bodhgaya in 1982. But we all know that memory is not what we think it is. <laughs> But I have this memory. I actually, my first Vipassana meditation retreat was in 1982 in Bodh India. It was a Christopher Titmus retreat. And Jack was sitting, Jack Cornfield, Joseph, um, Sharon Salzberg was at that retreat. James Berez was sitting that retreat back. I mean, this was a long time ago. And I saw Joseph, I have a memory of seeing Joseph and Christopher Titmus walking through just you know, the courtyard of, the, of where the retreat was, and one of them saying to the other, nothing is worth thinking about. And that's an excellent mantra for me, nothing is worth thinking about. You know, not right now, anyway. You know, we'll definitely get our thinking uh, faculties, will be sharpened when we get out of here. But right now, nothing is worth thinking about. I can't believe I'm like one page and it's already time to quit. Um, Other reflections. Any object can be known with mindfulness. Um, You know, one thing that I've heard in a lot of interviews is just to reflect on that all thoughts are impermanent. They have a beginning and an end and that they're inconsistent. And that if you want to bring precision to your practice... Precision in practice means seeing contact in Vedana and what happens after that. Is to really looking for uh, how things arise in the mind. What are the causes and conditions for things to arise? And one way to do that is to see contact with an object, and that could be a mental object. A thought in the mind is a mental object. And um, what Vedana, what feeling tone arises from that? And then what comes... You know, after that, that is one way to think about precision in the practice. Um, I, one more other um, reflection that a staff gave me, and actually it was given to me by Alexis. 
who is a very deep practitioner and who is actually going to be taking my spot when I leave here. He's going to be, he's in the teacher training and he is deep. He is a, he is really a deep guy. <laughs> he was a monk for two years with um, Saida Utejaniya and I went for a walk with him and he was just reflecting on something about something that Sayadaw said. He goes, I'm going to call him. He actually tried to call the Sayadaw. <laughs> I was impressed. <laughs> he had like text messages from the Sayadaw on his phone. But one thing that he said, <laughs> you know, he's really excellently versed in that style of practice and he has very deep wisdom. But one thing that Alexis said that was really useful for me is, you know, um, we had a teacher trainee walk around the loop and I was just expressing to him, it was an excellent safe place to talk about all my insecurities. And, you know, one, uh, you know, one thing I know for sure, both from social science and from the Dharma is that two things can be absolutely true at the same time in our minds that, you know, we have this idea that if two opposite things can't be true, but they very well can be true. I'm sure you've seen that in your mind. So I was uh, talking to Alexis about, how I have a deep ambivalence about teaching. On one hand, that's very true. And on the other hand, I love teaching. And, you know, just the incredible benefits that it offers. And he said, well, you know, I talked to Saida about that. And he said that we should all always remember that even, and this is true of all of us doing the work in this room right now, regardless of what's in our mind right now, what we're doing is incredibly wholesome practice. This is really a wholesome practice that we're doing. Even if we have um, calasis in the mind, you know, even if we're, um, you know, have self-hate, if we have hate for other people, if we have terrible greed in the mind, that, you know, we are practicing Satipatthana, you know, we are um, keeping precepts, you know, we are doing a very, very wholesome thing, so we can always be happy that we're doing it. We never, you know, we will never regret doing this retreat. I think, you know, when it's time for us to um, reflect on, you know, the worth of our lives, Practice will always be something that'll bring joy to your mind and happiness to your mind. And a feeling of uh, worth, you know, I don't want to say self-worth, but confidence. And that was really a wonderful teaching. And, um, I, and I want to remind us in that vein that there's this very um, f- a famous, you know, all the suttas I guess are famous, but there's one famous sutta that's very popular in Asia. And I think, I don't know if our Asian relatives who are sitting with us would um, agree with that, but the Maha Mangala Sutta, the Mangala Sutta is very famous. Uh, I have a dear friend, a practitioner, one of our Sangha members who is from Sri Lanka, and she said that they blast the Mangala Sutta through the um, through the allowed speakers all the time in Sri Lanka. And you guys, you, you probably know what it is, but it's the a sutta about the causes of happiness or the causes of blessings in our life. And there's 38 of them. And I think 28 of them we are doing here on this retreat. So I just want us to reflect on how, much, how many blessings that we have. I'm just going to name a, a few of them. Um, the, the highest blessings are things like not to associate with foolish people. 
That's a good one. I don't think, I have not met one foolish person here. I think foolishness arises sometimes. <laughs> In my mind, anyway. To associate with the wise. You know, this is just a reflection for your own happiness and, you know, your own goodness that you took the time to come here. To honor the worthy. To reside in a suitable location. To have done good deeds in the past and to do good deeds right now. To regulate oneself rightly. That's what we're doing. Satipatthana, it's regulating ourselves rightly. To be well-spoken. We're not speaking, so... (laughs) To be well-educated and knowledgeable, we are really learning about the Dharma here. To act without harming, you know, we're keeping the precepts. To engage in a harmless occupation, you know, we're doing our yogi jobs. To perform blameless actions. To abstain from evil, to avoid intoxicants. To be diligent and virtuous practice. To be reverent, humble, content, grateful. Um, gratitude is an excellent reflection for self-pity. I just want to mention self-pity real quick. That was my one of one really huge mental habit pattern in my mind when I, you know, did this retreat in 2004. I think it was. I just had a huge insight into how much self-pity, a huge neuropathway path in my brain there was for self-pity. And I was able to get a frame around it because it wasn't permanent, you know. But it was so normal in my mind, I didn't even realize it was there. And that's what we're doing. We're all we're looking for these habit patterns of mind that are so normal, so so ubiquitous to our experience, we don't even realize that they're there. And um, so when we're feeling self-pity, to reflect on gratitude. Another, my favorite uh, reflection is, it's a first world problem. Right? I mean, a lot of the things that we complain about on the retreat, they're first world problems. You know, think we could reflect about just how incredible, how incredibly fortunate we are to be here. We have no needs as far as food or shelter or anything like that. There's a lot of people in the world who don't have that. So I think a lot of our problems are first world problems. So I am out of time, so I do want to um, close with uh, reading the words that the Buddha specifically had for all of us. This is what the Buddha left for us. He left these words for all of us at this retreat. He said, So bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, The safe and good path that leads to happiness has been reopened by me. The wrong path has been closed off, the decoy removed, the dummy destroyed. What should be done for his disciples, out of compassion by a teacher teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them, that I have done for you, Bikos and Bikunis. There are these roots of trees, these empty huts. Meditate bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, do not delay or else you will regret it. This is our instruction to you. So we have our huts and we have our roots of trees. We have our little rooms, our kutis. We have everything we need to practice. And he has done this for us out of his compassion. So let's sit for a moment.
This is from Wei Wu Wei. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and of everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.